Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17, Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. Today we're going to be talking about Paul's experience there in Athens. Acts 17, verses 16 through 34. Now, before we get started, let me begin by saying something about the power of stories. When individuals come to the counseling center, usually they don't come just to hang out with me for 50 minutes at a time and tell me what a wonderful life they're having. They're usually bringing with them a, a very debilitating, difficult, troubling story. And one of my jobs is to listen carefully and lovingly and try to see if I understand their story and how it connects to God's bigger story. And so stories are very formative. I would go as far as to say this, stories are rapid rivers carving paths that shape our souls. Let me say that again. Stories are rapid rivers carving paths that shape our souls. You see, when we believe a particular story about ourselves, something someone's told us, we give authority to it, and as we give authority to it, it slowly begins to shape our lives. And what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is the stories we take in and believe about ourselves and about God and about others slowly change the way we think, the way we feel, and how we behave. The question we really have to examine is, am I believing the right story? Now, fortunately, God knows our need for stories, and he's blessed us with the biggest story of all. The story that helps us see the big picture about all of reality. It helps us think of the stories of our lives as little scenes within the grand narrative called the redemptive story. When we can make the connections between our story and God's story, we know ourselves a little bit better. We can interpret the motivations of others a little bit more clearly and we can walk more closely with God. That brings me to what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to answer a very simple question. How can we know God better? I would argue if you're going to make a New Year's resolution for yourself, instead of making the 50 resolutions that you've made for the last 30 years and you fall off the wagon every February, and I'm really being kind there because it's probably January 20th, Make this resolution that you'll get to know God better in 2022. The big idea that we're going to wrestle with this morning is this. You can fill in the blanks there. I wanted to give you something to take with you. To know God better, we must realize we are radically religious, reflective creatures who interpret our world through faith in something bigger than ourselves. However, because of sin, we constantly struggle with misplaced worship. Our affliction is idolatry, and God's prescription is the gospel. Now, I know that that's a mouthful, and 
We're going to unpack that idea as we go along. We must know ourselves. Second, we must know our struggle. And third, we must know God's solution. Now, before we get started, let me give you a little bit of background of this passage. It always helps to know the context of a story. You see, this morning's story is a scene that's embedded within a larger work that Dr. Luke wrote. It's a two-part work. In the first part, we know it as the book of Luke, and in the second part, the book of Acts. And this, these books were written to a fella named Theophilus. In the first part, uh, the book of Luke, uh, he recorded the life of Jesus. In the second part, uh, the theme is, is the, the acts of the apostles as they are witnesses to all Christ has done, uh, first in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So what we're going to see here is that, that the scene we're about to look at is a smaller scene within that bigger picture of the second part of the book of being witnesses. And it's in that context that we'll get to know God better. And with that in mind, if you're physically able, stand with me in reverence and we'll go through this passage and then I'll, I'll break it down for you. Starting in verse 16, chapter 17. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring." Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, 
Others, uh, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed. Among them, whom also were Dionysius, uh, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Let's pray. Father God, help us understand this story so that we may interpret this, our stories in light of this story and get to know you better. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. I really wanted to see how in shape you all were. That's why I picked such a long passage this morning. See if you can hang in there with me. Um, the first thing we need to understand if we're going to know God better is that we must know ourselves. And just uh, what is it that we need to know about us? Well, we need to know that we are seekers. We are seekers. Let's go to the store to see, see what it is that we so desperately seek. Look in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Our story opens here with Paul in Athens waiting for Silas and Timothy. While he's there, he, he looks around and he sees a city full of idols. The Greek carries with it the idea a city immersed in idols. So it wasn't just like a billboard. He went, oh, that's it. It's like everywhere he looked, he saw idolatry running rampant. It was so bad that the text tells us that he was provoked within his spirit. Uh, that carries with it in, 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 the, in the original language. He was infuriated by what he saw. Now, this wasn't a, a burst of anger where he like lost his temper, but it was this long, slow burn that occurred. He sat and he soaked it and he realized how deeply involved the Athenians were in all of this idolatry. It was so bad that although Paul wasn't going to be there long, he simply had to say something. Have y'all ever been in that situation where somebody's doing something and it's killing you? You've got to tell them. You've got to say, no, please stop. Please stop. It's like, um, it's like I believe it was Martin Lloyd-Jones' mother listened to his first sermon and he, he, he finished up, and, and, and he, he, went, he went for feedback, of course, from his mom, the woman that mattered the most. Mom, how did I do? And she said, young man, you missed several great opportunities to sit down. <laughs> I hope that I don't miss any of those opportunities this morning. We'll still beat the Methodists down to the Shoney's breakfast bar, I promise. <laughs> Maybe. Depends on how fast you all listen. Um, look at verse 17 and 18. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day and with those who happened to be there. And some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, uh, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said that he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. So Paul begins, it's bothering, he has to do something. So he starts talking with anybody that would listen. So he begins with the, the God-fearing Jews there in the synagogue, and, and then the God-fearing Gentiles that are hanging out there. Then he starts going into the marketplace, and he's sharing this idea of Jesus and the resurrection. In the meanwhile, he's talking, and he runs into groups of philosophers. And these are the two major philosophies of the day in that part of the world. 
the Epicureans, they thought that pleasure was the chief end of life. I wish I didn't understand that, but when my internet went out yesterday, I was pretty upset. I think I was a little more of an Epicurean because I wasn't acting very stoic about it. They believe life should be free from things like pain and fear. They, they didn't deny the existence of God, but they weren't really convinced that the gods really cared about human beings. So that was on one side of a, a major way of looking at the world, and on the other side were the Stoics. Now, they thought that life was about self-sufficiency. If it is to be, it's up to me kind of attitude. They emphasized rational thought, and, and they had a high sense of duty. They were what we might call pantheistic. Uh, they believed that everything in reality was divine. What we see happening here is that God has placed Paul very strategically in between the two prevailing worldviews of the day. The Epicureans on one side, the Stoics on another. And the worldview Paul is going to go presenting in this story is what we call Christianity. As the discussions were going on, though, Paul is, is drawing a lot of attention to himself. Some people even started calling him a babbler. This accusation meant that he was saying a great deal, but revealing very little of substance. It, it reminds me, I don't know if you've ever watched talk shows where they have Hollywood uh, stars, and if any Hollywood stars are listening or watching, I apologize ahead of time. But have you ever seen those talk shows and they come out, and my wife calls it Hollywood talk. They'll sit there with the, the host for 15 minutes talking, and when they're done, they really haven't said anything. Have y'all ever seen that? And, and it's that kind of, and so, so, so what they're saying is, is they're looking at Paul and he's talking about the resurrection. He's talking about this guy named Jesus. And they're saying, well, he says a lot, but he's not really saying anything. But it was new, so it interested them. So what they wanted to do was take him to a place where more people could hear him speak. Now, isn't that interesting how God's working behind the scenes here? Paul is, is, is moved along by the Spirit to see all the idolatry, and he's got to say something. So he says something, and the more he says, he says something to more people, and then he says something to more people, and then more people, and now all of a sudden, he's got him a little bit of an audience going on here. Quite possibly, he's making a scene, I guess. And it was so new, and it was so different, that they said, you know, you really need to come talk to us at this other place. We're going to have us a business meeting, I guess is how we would say it, right? And so he gets an opportunity, and they take him to a place called the Areopagus. Now, what was the Areopagus? Well, it was a court of aristocrats or rich, noble people, and they kind of exercised jurisdiction in matters of religion and morals at that time. Paul was taken there, and he was given the opportunity to share his ideas, now, here's, here's really in the whole story, this is where it gets really exciting because the question becomes, what's Paul going to do when he gets there, right? When he gets the big stage, when he gets the microphone, when he's got the floor, what's he going to do? Is he going to share the gospel? Well, we find out he does. And so he begins um, with this part of the presentation, if you will. And I find it very, very interesting. Verses 22 and 23. So he's gone from talking just in the synagogue, in the marketplace, to the philosophers or the educated ones, and now he's in front of a bunch of them that matter, that make decisions. 
So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I, also, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What is therefore, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Paul does something fascinating here. He starts where they are. He knows that they are religious internally like anyone else. He mentions that they have a lot in common because they both worship. The difference is they really don't know who they're worshiping. Isn't that true of us today? We're worshiping something. Sometimes we don't want to admit what it is, but we worship something. The key here for Paul, though, is he wants to begin where they are and show them there's common ground. Look in 24 through 26. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling places. Paul lets them know um, that they can know who they're worshiping. He's starting to tell them. You don't have to make sacrifices to this tomb of the unknown or this memorial or this statue of the unknown God. I'm going to tell you about the God who is really there and who exists. And then Paul tells them the nature of this God. That's what he's talking about when he says, look, he's not a dead God. He, he made everyone, including you and me. He set aside the periods we were going to be here on earth. He's too big to contain in a temple. He is the great I am, is what Paul is letting them know. And so Paul empathizes with his audience. He knows they're seeking something. In other words, why would you create a monument to God that you didn't even know? The early church theologian Augustine expressed the plight of the Athenian people in this way. And it's not just the Athenian people, it's all of us. He wrote this, Great are you, O Lord, and exceedingly worthy of praise. Your power is immense and your wisdom beyond reckoning. And so we men, who are a due part of your creation, long to praise you. We also carry our mortality about with us, carry the evidence of our sin, and with it the proof that you thwarted the proud. You arouse us so that praising you may bring us joy because you have made us, this is the important line, because you have made us and drawn us to yourself and our heart is unquiet until it rests in you. You see, both Paul and Augustine understood something very important about the makeup of human beings. We are religious creatures to our very core. We cannot help but worship something, and we will remain restless until our hearts rest in God. 
Another great person in church history, the French philosopher Blaise Pascal, put it this way. There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator made known through Jesus Christ. Paul is offering them a way to find rest for their unquiet hearts and fill the vacuum that motivated them to create a monument to an unknown God. The question becomes, why are they having, it's obvious, it's obvious that they're spiritually thirsty. You you hear today even, we live in a post-Christian culture. Would everybody agree with that? Post-Christian culture. We live in a post-Christian culture, yet the need of spirituality is, is greater than it ever has been before. This is where we can step in with a Christian worldview and speak the truth of the gospel into the lives of hurting people, ladies and gentlemen. But the question is, we got to know the story that we're speaking. And we have to know that internally, every heart aches to know God. Every one of them does. It gets expressed in funny ways. If you don't believe me, wait till next fall when we may be pretty good. 102,455 people, screaming worshipers, will gather about seven times every fall, this fall particularly, uh, and, and they, will, they will worship. And if you don't believe, if you don't, if you don't catch it there, don't worry, you can turn it on the sports talk radio and you can hear the post-service commentary. I never knew it was such a religious experience that we need to recruit more in-state talent and we need to throw to the tight end more. But apparently that's a very religious theological statement. So, that's my point. And if you've talked to these, and you hear them, they call in. And it's not, well, uh, the volunteers did this. It's like, we, we, we should have done this. We should have done that. And it, their lives are wrapped up in that. The reason I'm getting passionate about that is because I struggle with that myself, right? <laughs> As my wife would go, oh, pot, calling the kettle black. So, so the idea is that we're all thirsty for something spiritual, we, want, we, we, have, we have a thirst that doesn't go away. But the reason it doesn't go away is because we're drinking the wrong thing. In the book of John, chapter 4, verses 7 through 15, very familiar story. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. We have to understand that about ourselves. We seek, we're spiritually thirsty. 
We seek a drink, and the only thing that will satisfy is the living water offered by Jesus Christ, ladies and gentlemen. That's the only thing that will satisfy. And so we keep sampling the wrong objects of worship because we keep thinking, if Tennessee will just recruit a little bit better, I'll be happy. You know what happens? They win the national championship, and a few years later, they fire the coach, right? Apparently, people got thirsty again, right? That's the same way in other things in our lives, ladies and gentlemen. The only thing that quenches our thirst is the living water. And we've got to understand, we place all of our faith in that object that we seek. But human beings can only find meaning in their objects of worship. And like the Samaritan woman, all people thirst for meaning. But only the true and living God can quench that thirst. We are all continually seeking the next big thing. That thing that's going to bring us spiritual enlightenment. But in our quest, we misplace our worship. The question we have to keep asking ourselves when, when we feel this compulsion to find meaning is to ask, where is my worship? Where is my worship? What I had to realize is I had to repent a lot because, well, since about 2008 or so, we've had to repent a lot if we're Tennessee fans. But, but I had to repent a lot because it mattered too much to me. Does that make sense? There are other things in this world that are a lot more important. There's other things in this universe that are more important, and namely, that's God. So in the first part of the story, what we've kind of seen here is that we are natural-born worshipers. We will worship something. However, there is a problem with each of us. We don't naturally experience worship the way we'd want. And that leads us to the second point. There's a reason. So we are seekers. We seek connection with the divine. That's what we, every person that's ever been born does that. But we have a struggle. And we must understand it if we're to know God better. And our struggle is, ladies and gentlemen, we stumble. Look in 27b through 29 there or so. He says, in 27 earlier, he says that they should seek for God and perhaps feel their way toward him. And find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. In him we live and move and have our being. As even some of our own po- your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. In this section we see Paul connecting with his audience by quoting two Greek poets that they're all familiar with. By starting with something that the Athenians knew. Paul's showing that they matter as people, which is really important. He shows that by showing them that he knows how they think. You see, Paul is pushing the right buttons um, because the Athenians, okay, the Athenians had, I'm trying to think how to word this, they had a little bit of Athenian superiority going on. Um, They thought that they were better than the other Greek city-states because they had descended from the gods. 
So they were better. It's like they were looking down their noses at everyone else. And knowing this, Paul uses it, though, to his advantage. But instead of simply telling them what they want to hear, he puts a biblical twist on it. So look in verse 29. He says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think of the divine beings like gold, silver, or stone, an image formed in the art and imagination of man. So, so what he's really doing here is he, is he knows that the Athenians think that they are descended from the gods. So there's something special, more special than everybody else. And so Paul looks at it and goes, mm-hmm. Well, you know, you are special. You're special because you're a human being. But he puts a biblical worldview on. He says, but the reason you're special is because you, like everybody else, has been created in God's image. And that means inherently you're worthy of dignity and respect. Now, he does something so interesting here. If you, um, if you follow along, he's looking at all the idols. Like I said, in verse 29, it says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. He's saying, yeah, you're God's offspring in the sense that you've been created in his image. Now, here's Paul's argument. Think this through. Just follow with me here for a moment. We're almost finished. A couple more hours and I'll be done. Since you bear God's image, you reflect some of the same qualities as God. Does that make sense to everybody? You're an image bearer, which means you're a reflection in some way, shape, or form of God. Well, okay, what are some of those ways? Well, you're relational, you're living, you're personal, you have a personality, so does God. And, and you're rational as well. Well, most of you are rational as well. Well, However, so you're a reflection of God. However, that's not what you're worshiping. What you're worshiping are things made of gold and silver and stone. Now, you're worshiping things that are not like yourself because gold and silver and stone is not rational and it's not relational, it's not living, it's not personal. And since these things don't reflect you and since you, don't, those, uh, since you reflect God, they don't reflect him either. So to worship something that's not alive is by very definition, idolatry. So he starts where they are thinking they're somebody else. They're special. And they are because they're image bearers. Great. However, they're committing idolatry. Paul is saying, look. This God you have been groping around to find is not far from you. But you can't seem to find him because you're, here's how you're living your life. You're a texting teenager stepping off a sidewalk. Let that image sink in for a minute. None of y'all have ever done that, have you? What happens? It's, there, there's no way to be cool and awkward at the same time, is there? Paul is saying, look, you're missing it. You're too busy staring at something from the creation. And since we can only pay attention to one thing at a time, we totally miss the creator. Ezekiel puts this beautifully 
in uh, chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. He says, Then certain of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me, and the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set a stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Therefore speak to them and say to them, thus says the Lord God, any one of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are all estranged from me through their idols. The thing we must understand is that if we want to know God better, we must be aware of our tendency to worship God's substitutes. We want a God created in our own image and we forget that we've been created in his. To take, uh, the takeaway here is that misplaced worship never enlightens, but it always blinds. Now, as you think about your own life this morning, how clear is your vision? Where's your worship? Are you worshiping the things that matter or are you preoccupied worshiping something less? And that's what Paul's point is here. Now, we've seen that we are religious beings who, who seek to worship something greater than ourselves. We've also learned that we have a problem and that we waste time stumbling and worshiping God's substitutes. Now we're going to see that God offers a solution. Look in 30 through 34. Verse 30 says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. You see, as Paul continues his message, he tells the Athenians, look, God has previously overlooked your idolatry. And he's done so simply because you didn't know any better. But now guess what? I just told you, you do know better now. And he's calling them to respond. What he wants them to do is he wants them, look what the, what the text says. Um, the times of ignorance God overlooked and now he commands all people everywhere to repent. What God wants you to do now, Athenians, is to turn from one thing and toward another. Paul is telling them that they need to turn from their dead idols and turn to the living God. And in 31, Paul lets them know uh, that there will be a cost associated with not leaving their idols behind. He tells them that there's a judgment coming. He also tells them about the judge who's going to be executing that justice. Although Paul doesn't mention this judge by name, we know that he's talking about Jesus. Paul tells his audience, the creator God is going to judge, uh, to bring a judge upon you if you don't turn and trust him. And he's proven that he has the power to do so because the guy that he's bringing, he raised from the dead. Now, when the Athenians heard this about the resurrection, Paul immediately loses some of them. Um, we have to remember he's talking to people who hold a completely different way of looking at the world than he does. The Athenians had always been taught that there was no such thing as a resurrection. Not only was there no resurrection, but to believe there was, was considered kind of childish and immature. So once Paul started talking about resurrection, many of the Athenians were like, okay, I'm out. That's it. But not all of the Athenians rejected Paul's message. Some heard and they believed. And for those who believed, some miraculous things occurred at that very moment. 
First Peter 2.9 tells us that they were called out of darkness and into light. John 5.24 tells us that they stepped out of death and into life. And John 1.12 and 13 tells us that they became permanent members of God's family. What we see happening to close the story is that while misplaced worship never enlightens but always blinds, genuine worship, ladies and gentlemen, always leads to a knowledge of the truth. And that's with a capital T. The question for you this morning to consider, though, is how genuine is your worship? Well, I hope that our talk has kind of helped you know God a little bit better today. Before we close, let's review what we've learned. I said it a little differently, but here's what we've learned. We learned that if we're going to know God better, we must first know ourselves. We must acknowledge that we are seekers. We are religious creatures to our very core. Number two, we learned that if we're going to know God better, we must know our struggle. We must admit that we all stumble into misplaced worship. And third, we learned that if we're going to know God better, we must know God's solution. We must take the gospel into our hearts and let it carve a new path into our souls, a path of living water. Let me share a story with you that will, I hope will tile this together for you. And I want you to put yourself in the place of each of these characters and figure out which one you represent. Some years ago, a famous actor was asked at a party to recite some lines to entertain the attending guest. He said he would and asked if there was anything in particular they wanted to hear. After a minute's pause, an older gentleman, a retired pastor, asked the actor to give a dramatic recitation of Psalm 23. The actor thoughtfully paused, and after a moment he said, I will, on one condition, that after I've recited it, you, my friend, will do the same. Surprised, the old pastor said, well, I'm not very eloquent, but I would be happy to do so. Impressively, the actor began the psalm. His voice and pitch were perfect. He held his audience spellbound, and as he finished, a great burst of applause broke from his guest. As it died away, the pastor arose, ambled over to where the actor stood, and began to recite the psalm. His voice, unremarkable. His tone sounded like the old man he was. But when he had finished, the audience sat silently, tears running down many faces, moved by the old pastor's efforts. The actor placed his arm around his aging co-star, and with watery eyes and a quivering voice, he announced, Ladies and gentlemen, I reached your ears and your eyes. He has reached your hearts. The difference is just this. I know the psalm, but he knows the shepherd. And if we're going to know God better, we must first know God. And we can't know God unless we know his son, Jesus Christ. My question for you this morning is, do you know Jesus? Now, if you don't have a personal relationship with Christ, let me explain how that can change. I want you to listen carefully to what I'm about to say. 
Richard Baxter, Puritan pastor, said anytime he got in the pulpit, his goal was to preach as a dying man to dying men. So what I'm about to say in the next couple of minutes, if you haven't heard anything, please listen to this. What I'm about to tell you is one of those bad news, good news things. The truth is that the one and only God created everything, including you and including me. Now this creator God is also a holy God and he requires absolute purity in his presence. But each of us is, is guilty. We're guilty of idolatry in one way, one shape, or one form or another. And as a result, we all stand in his presence with a stain on our souls because we've broken God's law of holiness. We stand contaminated. We stand condemned in his presence. Our relationship to God is ruptured. God's wrath for our wrongdoing hovers over our heads, much like that camera boom. I was here Friday night, come down front when we did the thing for the, and I literally, I know I've been here 11 or 12 years and we've not lost one person yet, but I was convinced that was gonna hit me right on my head. And I want you to think of that word picture because if you don't know Jesus Christ, God's wrath hangs upon you over your head like that boom does. That, my friends, is the bad news. But I'm also here to give you good news this morning. The same holy God who created you and created me also loves us with an everlasting love. God has demonstrated his love for us and that he's made a way to heal the rupture and be reconciled to him. He fixed our problem by sending his son, the man Jesus Christ, into the world. Now, Jesus lived the perfect life that, that we could never live. He always obeyed God's perfect law. And he took upon himself the punishment that we earned through our idolatry by dying on a cross to satisfy God's holy wrath. God then validated this Jesus and his sacrificial act because he, rose, he, re, he, he resurrected him from the dead. And this resurrection shows that God accepted Jesus' offering and God's wrath was exhausted. So if you're in Christ this morning, God is still holy. But take heart, dear friend, he's not mad anymore. But the question becomes, are you in Christ? You see, you become in Christ as you turn from your idols and place your trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. The Bible calls this turning repentance and it calls this trusting faith. So if we turn and trust or repent and believe, we shall be saved into a new life, an eternal life with God. So if you're not in Christ this morning, if you're not a child of the King, I wanna give you that opportunity. You may be thinking, I know I need to commit my life to Christ. 
I don't know how to do it. Well, that's okay. Because when we stand here in a moment, we're going to have pastors and counselors and other brothers and sisters that would love to do, they would love to take you by the hand and walk you through that process. Now, what if, what if you're in Christ? How should you respond to a message such as this? Well, you may be in Christ, but you must remember that idolatry is a constant struggle we all experience. This morning, I want to give you the opportunity to lay down any idols that may be in front of your own face. That way, you have an opportunity to see God better. This altar is going to be open here in a moment. If you're struggling with something that seems to be dominating your life, come and give it to the Lord. That way you don't have to be the texting teenager stepping off the sidewalk in 2022. You can serve Christ in a way like you never have before. There may be other needs this morning. You may simply need prayer for yourself or a loved one or a situation you're facing, but but feel free to come and lift those needs up to God this morning. Regardless of your situation though, if you want to know God better, You must first know Jesus. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. As we close, I'll leave you with a simple question. Have you seen Jesus? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the wonderful celebration of your son's birth yesterday. Dear Lord, it's my prayer that anyone here within the sound of my voice be they in the auditorium, or be they even uh, on, online somewhere listening, that you will move them along by the power of your Holy Spirit, Father, to make a decision for you today, to turn and to trust so that they can truly know you. Father, there are many other needs in our church family. This is a difficult time for most of us in one way, shape, or form. And Father, I pray that you will grant your mercy and rain your grace down upon us. And Father, if there are things that, that families need to work through and, and if there's, 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 there's things they need to give to you, Father, bring them forward so that they can lift those things up to you, dear Lord. Father, whatever you decide to do, move by your spirit in a mighty way. In Christ's name we pray, amen.